Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, I'm That Williams Guy, back for yet another episode, and rejoining us is Mr. Masa Yub, who really doesn't need an introduction, but we're going to let him do one anyway. How you doing, Moss? Uh, doing good, brother. How are you? Uh, just rocking along here, and uh, you are out at the Firearms Academy of Seattle right now, right? Uh, we are. We're between classes. We did a 40-hour first level last week, MAG 40, and we're doing a 40-hour advanced course, MAG 80, this coming week, day after tomorrow. All right, and Marty Hayes is somewhere off camera there. He so, is, uh, but he's here, and he's uh, <laughs> not only been a great host over the years and a magnificent instructor, but a heck of a good source of tech support. Well, Moss was kind enough to join us for a previous episode in which we kind of talked about some of the the training history from parts of the country other than the West Coast. And uh, that episode has gotten a good number of plays, but there were some audio problems with it. And so we're going to kind of talk about a couple of those things again, and then we're going to move into tonight's topic, which is expert witness uh, work. And so, Moss, before we started the recording, you were talking about uh, uh, Mr. McGee from NYPD. Yeah, there were a whole lot of people during that era, the uh, you know late 60s into the 70s and beyond, that didn't get a whole lot of credit because while they were hugely influential in their region, uh, they made no attempt to go national. Uh, Frank McGee, for example, uh, Lieutenant McGee was one of my mentors. In 1970, he was the guy who turned New York City Police Department Firearms Training Unit into the Firearms and Tactics Unit. and the, the difference it made was overwhelming in terms of the, the survival stats of those tens of thousands of officers there. And that legacy continues today. Uh, out of New York, uh, the New York office of FBI, uh, the, uh, oh, my mind just went blank. <laughs> hold, hold the tape. Sure. Well, I know you also mentioned a guy from the Smith and Wesson Academy. Yes, uh, Smith, and I'm trying like hell to Charlie Smith. Uh, my age is showing. Uh, Charlie established Smith and Wesson Academy, the first of the private firearms training and firearms instructor schools for police, and did an enormous job and was hugely influential in bringing modern training to the northeastern United States, although they drew people from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, if you look in the heartland, Ohio, more than any other, seemed to spawn great officer survival instructors. Uh, you go back to Bill Gross, the ex-SWAT cop, who for many years was lead firearms instructor at APOTA, the Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy. You look from there, and uh, some of the great names of today, uh, John Benner, uh, Dave Spaulding, from, uh, he did most of his time with Montgomery County Sheriffs in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And before Dave at Montgomery County, Terry, uh, Terry Campbell. Now, Terry Campbell was a firearms instructor, but spent more of his time on DT, defensive tactics, and was among the first to integrate defense, physical defensive tactics with firearms and what we call today combatives. 
uh, he and I first met when we were both teaching at the PR24 International Seminar hosted at Apoda. Uh, Terry was the one guy I ever met who came up with an effective weapon retention technique for plainclothes officers wearing shoulder holsters. But you, you look down the list, you've got uh, Chris Serino, uh, you've got Keith Davis, uh, Ken Hackathorne originated in Ohio, uh, training both police and armed citizens, I believe in the Marietta area. Uh, Rick Miller, I don't think ever got the credit he deserved. Uh, he was doing what we now call IDPA, challenging realistic concealed carry courses before there was IDPA. Uh, Alliance Ohio PD, uh, they uh, probably alone among the, the high profile departments encouraged this type of training made available to private citizens through the department. And Alliance PD does that to this day. Uh, some of the other areas that I think were leaders, certainly Illinois State Police. Uh, they were the first major agency in this country to go to the semi-automatic service pistol, the standard issue, uh, the Smith Model 39 in 1967, uh, under Lewis Seaman, who was the head of uh, ordinance for ISP. Uh, to, even today, uh, in retirement still active, Dick Fairburn. Uh, Dick has done enormous research uh, related to officer survival that is, is of extreme value. And Dick does teach nationally at, you know, in the old days at ASLED, American Society of Law Enforcement Trainers, and to this day at ILEDA, International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association. So we, we've had around the country a whole lot of folks who made a whole lot of contributions. Uh, in Michigan, uh, Detroit Police Lieutenant uh, Evan Marshall, uh, he coined the term street survival in his column in Police Marksman Magazine. In the early 70s, before Caliber Press existed and popularized the term. And again, his emphasis was much more on tactics than on gun selection or anything like that, even though he created a lot of controversy with his ammunition study. So there are, there are a whole lot of folks out there who are unsung heroes of the officer survival movement and whose research and training and really pioneering work has also greatly benefited the law-abiding armed citizen community. And as we were joking before we started recording, you know, last time we had audio issues, we were in two separate states talking back and forth to each other, recording this. Now we're across the country from each other. Doing yeah, this. but we have better connection. My apologies right. for the horrible Zoom connection that we had that time. Yeah, but, you know, what I'm going with this is, you know, in that era, it was all done by letter or magazine article or phone calls, conferences. One-on-one one -on -one yeah. one phone calls, yeah. And the ability for one person to to spread and be known and have an impact across the wide area just wasn't what it's like right now, where somebody can throw up a YouTube channel or an Instagram and reach the world instantly. That's the truth. And, you know, it's there's got to be people that just – never were known outside of their local area, but they had the same impact of the people who published articles. Yeah, well, I asked McGee, uh, I said, Frank, why do you only teach outside NYPD once a year? Uh, at the National Bullseye Pistol Championships at Camp Perry, uh, he would do a one-day police school every year. Because I got family there, and it gives me an excuse to visit. I got 36,000 cops I got to train. That's already all I can handle. And he was absolutely right. There's a whole lot of folks there 
their loyalty and their their 40 and usually more than 40 hours a week uh, was focused on those people who were literally within the mantle of their protection, the people who it was their literal job to train. Right. And you also have to take into account that, okay, in order to train outside of your agency, you may have to take leave, you know, time off to do that. And so you're sacrificing your vacation time that you could be spending with your family or doing other things that you enjoy to go teach. As you know, better than most. Yeah. It, uh, well, for most of the part of the time I've been doing this on the national scene, I had a boss that allowed me to mix the two. Uh, that's not the case anymore, you know, cause I've changed jobs, but, uh, I still get to do it, but now I, I have to do the whole leave and swap out time or work, longer days Monday through Thursday so I can go run all Friday and Saturday and Sunday and teach but it's just it's not an easy thing to do unless you're just what you want to do that's true Uh, anything else from the training side of things as far as like historical certainly in in your backyard uh, federal law enforcement training center Uh, all of us were grateful that they reached out and allowed x number of, of us in municipal policing others in state and county policing uh, to attend a facility that originally had been designed for federal law enforcement. And your listeners who've been to Fletzy, I don't know what your belief system is, but if there was a heaven for firearms instructors, they will assign you to the federal law enforcement training center at Brunswick, Georgia. (laughs) They literally took over the old Glencoe Naval Base, made it a community of training barracks that can house the students right there and the only place i've ever seen professional actors doing the role plays for the crisis rehearsal the the force on force and all of that Um, it was simply awesome and i give them great credit for reaching out to the other elements of american law enforcement and they, they did a whole lot to spread modern doctrine i've been fortunate to go to three or four instructor schools through fletzy uh, some of them I've done as export courses, so they weren't actually at the Fletsy facility, but I did the use of force instructor there, and that was an 80-hour just, you know, wonderful laboratory of dealing with use of force topics. Yeah, I'm sure all the audience has heard of, been to a shooting range that had multiple bays, like you go to a championship match, and like in each bay, there's a different stage. Well, folks, think of a training facility where each bay is a different scenario. One of them is a city park. One is a construction site. One is an office building. One is somebody's backyard. And in each one of them, there are, as you said, trained actors playing a role. And then you have a lawyer following you around (laughs) watching everything you do and and critiquing you afterwards. It was was an amazing experience. That's why I say it's a heaven for firearms instructors. If there's a hell for firearms instructors, they'll probably put you to work on the public ranch. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it is funny. There's a pretty strong tie between the Georgia Public Safety Training Center and the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. You know, both yeah. are in the same state. And, and there's some crossover. Some of the staff starts in, here in Georgia and then they will go to work for the feds. And the running joke is that when one of those guys takes those jobs, talk about a guy walking up with a tray full of magazines and a towel over his arm, you know, wanting, wanting to wait on him. But uh, it's, it's a different world there. Yes. And uh, another thing the audience might be interested in is the basic academies that are going on at Fletzy they may have a role-playing scenario pop up anywhere on the facility. 
because as part of their graduation exercises, they go out in patrol cars with a training officer riding around and they get dispatched to things and they're running around with their sim guns on and everything else. And so one of those exercises may break out at anywhere in the facility at any time and they have to deal with it. And so that's why they have to be so tight on their controls on firearms and ammunition and everything inside the facility, so, which is perfectly reasonable in that. Uh, anything else from the training history side you'd like to talk about? I, th- I think we've pretty much covered the waterfront, and I appreciate you reaching out and recognizing all those unsung heroes of the officer survival movement. Yeah, there's just so much out there that needs to be made sure that we could document it. Um, from the expert witness side, I guess one, probably the big question most firearms trainers would have is how do you get involved in that line of work? Well, everybody has to start somewhere. Uh, Basically, you look at the function of the expert witness. Uh, Historically, it it was for issues that were beyond the ken of the jury. In Old English, something that the average citizen in the jury pool would not be expected to know about or perhaps even know existed. But now 12 of those ordinary people have been put in a situation where someone's life and future is in their hands. Did they act correctly? Well, for them to determine that, someone has to tell them what are the correct standards. So one element of expert testimony is the training standards within that particular discipline. And then they have that against which to compare the the officer's actions based on testimony and other evidence that they've seen. the, the two basic standards uh, come from Supreme Court cases. The Fry standard uh, is the easiest. It means simply you're an expert if you have specialized knowledge. Uh, you don't have to have published on it, but that generally helps to establish uh, that you have credibility in the field. And it has to be uh, one of the standards is are you someone to whom your peers go to for advice in this particular discipline. The Daubert standard, if you want to look it up, it's D-A-U-B-E-R-T, is a little more stringent. Uh, The big thing that came out of the Daubert decision was the elimination of junk science. Uh, the, The judge, who is the gatekeeper of testimony, is instructed not to allow anything that they can't show is peer reviewed, is within the mainstream of common custom and practice uh, within that specific discipline, ideally within best practices within that discipline. Uh, The bottom line is most any instructor in a field can be qualified as an expert witness in that field. Uh, the, The big mistake people make, that lawyers make, is trying to, uh, during the qualification hearing, uh, saying, I want this witness to testify that my client's actions were reasonable. You can't do that. And that has kept out more expert witnesses than anything else. Uh, I think you were in my lecture uh, attack on when we talked about how that killed the case for Amber Geiger, the uh, Dallas policewoman who was off duty, entered the wrong apartment in a little house made of ticky tacky and the rooms all look just the same structure and wound up convicted of murder. The expert witness who I believe probably would have clarified things for the jury and very likely led to an acquittal 
was offered to show the reasonableness of her actions. And the judge said, no, reasonableness is the province of the jury. Okay. No expert may invade the province of the jury. And the point that I always tell attorneys to make to get me qualified is that, look, we're not going to address the ultimate issue, the ultimate issue being guilt or innocence, culpability or, or non-culpability. We're not going to say it was reasonable, but we're going to establish the parameters of reasonableness so the jury has a yardstick against which to measure the actions of the defendant. And the parallel that I give is consider, uh, imagine that it's a medical malpractice case. And the, the issue involved is an uncommon disease called disease X that most people might not even know existed. Well, the ultimate issue is whether or not the doctor was negligent in diagnosis and treatment of a disease X patient. Well, if half or more of the jury never knew disease X existed, how can they make that determination without someone explaining to them, here's what disease X is, here's the etiology of the disease, here's the history of its diagnosis and treatment, here are current common uh, threat custom and practices for diagnosis and treatment, and what we in our field consider best practices, and now they have that yardstick, and now they can make a fair decision. And in my side of things, uh, my fields are training standards, uh, both police and civilian for use of force and with emphasis on deadly force. Uh, protocols for homicide investigation, which often gets screwed up, and that may be why we're recording in the first place. And uh, things of that nature, correlating evidence, uh, scene reconstruction, and uh, all, you know how a given weapon works relative lethality of this, that, or the other weapon. Uh, it's very common when the officer shoots someone coming at him with a knife for the other side's argument to be he only had a knife. And they play on what I've come to call the hierarchy of lethality myth. Uh, the, the general public sees the gun as up here, the, the deadly at the nuclear level of handheld weapons. The knife, yeah, they know you can stab somebody with it, but every morning they butter their toast with one every night they cut their steak with one and they don't see it as anywhere near the level of a firearm and probably even less so with a blunt instrument so we have to explain to them and let, let's say in a knife case the average person doesn't realize a four-inch blade knife can penetrate eight inches deep into the body of a, and a thrust they don't realize that someone who knows how to strike the knife drop their center and carve out can open you from side to side, open your belly like a, a zipper bag and leave your intestines on the ground. The knife can make a much larger wound than the bullet. Uh -huh. uh, well, why didn't you just take his knife away? Well, if you can grab the guy's gun, you can direct the force. If you grab the guy's knife, you grab the guy's knife, what's going to happen? He's going to slash back out. And those four little thumps are going to be your fingers falling on the floor. If you grab his wrist, he can hook in and I'm not going to slash myself away, <laughs> but basically uh, slash the, uh, the radial artery, sever all the tendons. And if they get a tourniquet on you in time to survive with the severed tendons, your new nickname is going to be flipper. And the jury needs to know how deadly that stuff is. So on use of force side, those are some of the things that we're called to testify on. 
one of the differences between an expert witness and say just a lay witness was the expert witness may offer opinion. Correct. While the opinion can never be an invasion of the province of the jury, the opinion okay. can't be he was right. The opinion can't be it was self-defense. It can't be he's not guilty. The opinions you would, could, would offer would be like things. How quickly could that man with a knife have reached you? How many times in a second might he have stabbed you? How quickly was that man that they you thought was coming at you when you fired the shot? How quickly could he turn away as you're pulling the trigger and the shot enters behind lateral midline and you're seen as having shot him in the back? Uh, one very common thing we have to explain is disparity of force. Uh, you've got a 100-pound female officer attacked by the 250-pound creature from the testosterone swamp who's trying to beat her head, uh, beat her brains out against the side of the patrol car, and she shoots him. We've seen just in this last year two high-profile nationally televised cases where the attorney said, and one of them damn near screamed uh, in open court, it can't be self-defense to shoot an unarmed man. And an appalling number of attorneys got through three years of law school without realizing that disparity of force has long since been recognized. That if the ostensibly unarmed attacker has greater size and strength, uh, greater tactical advantage, for instance, you're seat belted in the car where you can't roll with a punch, can't, can't punch back with any force, and he's smashing you in the face through the open window. Uh, it would be, I, I would call that position of disadvantage. Force of numbers, uh, very often male attacking female uh, because it's well established the male of our species tends to be larger, tends to be stronger, and also culturally has a greater dispositioning toward physical force and physical violence. Uh, you don't see a whole lot of uh, females playing tackle football, for example. Uh, the disparity of force might be known or obviously recognizable high skill in unarmed combat. Uh, you've read this guy's rap sheet, you've arrested him twice, and you know that before he went bad, he was a second-degree black belt, and you're not. Or you saw him sidekick your partner, who's the size of Marty Hayes, through a plate glass window. Uh, close enough, uh, we're dealing with someone who has an unusually high level of skill in being able to harm people. Another very common one is the able-bodied attacking the handicapped even if the handicap has taken place in the course of the instant assault. Uh, you started out in fine shape, physically equal, and he opened the ball by kicking you in the kneecap and breaking your patella. Okay, now you can't maneuver. Now it's much harder for you to slip a punch. It's going to be all you can do to stay on your feet. You can no longer physically defend yourself, get your body weight behind a punch, and you certainly can't kick. So you, you have that handicap element there. Uh, the able-bodied attack and the handicap. Uh, basically, what disparity of force is saying is that within the totality of the circumstances that the courts demand us to assess, that his ability to harm with fists and feet is so great that it is seen at law as the equivalent of a deadly weapon, and it warrants your recourse to the per se deadly weapon, uh, such as the service pistol, to save your life. But the average person has no clue. The average person in the jury pool has been accultured to believe that the armed man shooting the unarmed man is a coward, is a criminal. It can't possibly be a fair fight. It can't possibly be self-defense. 
And that's the sort of thing that they bring in expert witnesses like Marty Hayes, myself, and many more of the people you know. And I know that you've been doing it recently. And let me publicly congratulate you from what I hear. You've done a hell of a job. I've I've done two expert witness cases, and one of the cases is still ongoing, so I can't discuss the the, the issues involved there. Um, I will say that the other expert witness case was much more mundane than some of the issues we've already discussed. Uh, the defendant in the case, off camera, racked the slide of the pistol to chamber around, and but the audible sound of that was captured on on the deputy's body camera and one of the things that i was brought in to testify was so it would be clear to the jury was that that was the defendant racking the slide on his pistol and not the deputy because how many times have you know jurors seen hollywood's depiction of an officer hunting someone and like just before the climactic fight they chamber around and they're going sometimes two or three times in the same scene um, and so I actually went and that was one of the things they had me go into on the stand about how we knew that that was not the deputy doing that because the deputy under our policy would have been carrying with a round in the chamber. That was the common practice. And then some of the things I had to address was how would the deputy know that sound and what it meant? Well, this particular deputy has graduated from not one, but two police academies and worked in a gun store prior to going into law enforcement, not testified to all that. He's also a firearms instructor. And coincidentally, he's got a 1207 time on the casino drill. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, this guy has heard the sound of a pistol being racked before, and he would it's, instantly recognize. It's always a good sign when your defendant <laughs> is more highly qualifiable on the topic than the other side's expert. Right. And, um, yeah, that was, you know, interesting things that came up in the court. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, why am I having to testify as to all these things that those of us in the industry would take it as a given? But the prosecutor was very concerned in making sure that the jury understand that the sound of that pistol being racked was from the defendant and why the deputy would take that as a sign of danger. Yeah, we, one, one mistake experts make, we get so used to working with the people we've trained, the people who understand what we do, that we kind of take it for granted when we talk inside baseball kind of stuff that the listener is going to hear it. And we've got to remember that during voir dire, the jury selection process, opposing counsel is going to screen out all the people who understand these issues. That if it is an unmeritorious case, and we're not going to take a defense case unless the, the prosecution of the plaintiff does have an unmeritorious case, a bad case. The other side doesn't want people who know the truth. And that's why part of the defense is going to have to be to bring in people like you, me, and many of your listeners who can explain to the jury first, here's what you need to know before you judge this. Here's how this thing works. And... You know, give them give them that that framework against to judge the fact against which to judge the facts and the testimony. Yeah, so far, both of the the expert cases I have done have been in in criminal court. One time I testified for the prosecution. One time I testified for the defense. I have yet to do anything in the civil side, which is a completely different ball game in a lot of lot of aspects. Uh, would you care to go into some of the differences between criminal court and civil court? 
Uh, broader discovery in civil court, I think. Um, I think you'll find generally more uh, more personality attacks, at least that's been my observation. Uh, other than that, the as far as the expert witness, the admissibility elements are, are pretty close. Uh, the big difference that you have in the criminal court is that the defendant has the right to not take the witness stand. And that's not necessarily the case in a civil lawsuit. So you, the civil lawsuit probably means the defense team is going to have to spend uh, more time getting that individual ready for cross-examination, doing more, uh, more mock cross, et cetera. Uh, eight days ago, I was teaching at the uh, Florida Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers annual seminar. And among the other speakers were Mark Richards and Corey Chirathisi, the two attorneys who defended Kyle Rittenhouse. And some of the inside stuff on that was fantastic. Among other things, uh, they had done multiple mock juries. And the, uh, the mock jury, the performance of the kid, and the jury's very positive reaction to him was what convinced them to put him on the stand. And that is always wise, uh, criminal or civil. The judge may tell, in, in a criminal case, the judge may tell the jury, look, the, you must draw no inference from the fact that the defendant did not take the stand. The judge's instructions will not overcome subconscious human nature. People think, well, if I was wrongfully accused, I'd be champing at the bit to get up on the soapbox and scream my story to the world. What's going on with this guy? Um, the, with the, the, the honest defendant who used force and self-defense, it's not a whodunit. It's not going to come down to who shot this guy. It's an affirmative defense. We're stipulating, yeah, this guy shot him, but he was right to do it. And the legal arguments of uh, burden of proof aside, real world jury psychology, that means you have to convince those jurors that they would have done the same thing. The key issue now is not who did what. The key issue is why did he do it? Who besides the defendant can fully explain that? The attorney can't. Uh, I think one of the reasons that Chauvin was uh, convicted in the uh, George Floyd incident was his uh, choice not to take the stand, or the defense's choice for him not to take the stand. Interestingly, uh, when that statement was made outside the hearing of the jury, of course, uh, the attorney said, Your Honor, we've had very heated arguments over this, and the decision has been made that he will not take the stand. We never did find out which of them, Chauvin or his lawyer, wanted Chauvin on the stand. But when I watched that, I just turned away and walked out of the room watching it live feed because I knew there was no chance at all that guy was going to be acquitted without yeah. the jury hearing what was going through his mind during that almost 10 minutes that he had his knee on George Floyd. That brings to mind a memory of a case in which the defendant requested a self-defense immunity hearing in a, in a case here, but then did not take the stand at the self-defense immunity hearing. And the judge sat there it's like, if you're not gonna get up at your own hearing and testify as to why you acted in self-defense, how can I rule in your favor? Yes, you've, there's been no testimony offered as to what made this lawful self-defense. Yeah, he just claimed self and asked for the hearing and then didn't offer any evidence. 
Well, I, I think a big part of it in criminal court, and particularly with civilian uh, self-defense shootings, they hire a criminal defense lawyer. I've spent a lot of time with criminal defense lawyers. I've talked to a whole lot of them who retired after 20, 30 years of practice and told me they never felt they'd ever defended a truly innocent Perry Mason type client. When the vast majority of what you do is defending guilty men, you're not going to put them on the stand. What possible good could it do? They're, they're, anything they say, if they tell the truth, it's going to inculpate them and send them up the river. If they lie, it adds felony perjury to everything else. And if you're the attorney who put them on the stand, it leaves you open to the argument that you committed subordination of perjury and knew he was going to perjure himself, which where I come from is a class four felony in and of itself and will cost you your license to practice law. And when that becomes their default, I never put my defendant on the stand. Now they get their first self-defense case. Don't fully understand that in the affirmative defense, it's coming down to why did he do it? And nobody else can really articulate that as well as the defendant. And the defendant goes down the tubes. Now, I've had, we have had exceptions to that. And I've had to, uh, just this year, an armed citizen uh, charged with murder and looking at life without parole in South Dakota and a police officer uh, federally charged on trial in federal court in Tampa of a Florida county deputy. Now, in neither of those cases did they take the stand. In the first case, the citizen had done what you and I would have told him not to. Uh, I would have told him, here's the bare bones, five-point checklist of what you say at the scene. This man attacked me or whatever it was that led to the shooting. Indicate that you'll testify against them or words to that effect point out evidence, point out witnesses. And at that point, politely say, officer, you'll have my full cooperation after I've spoken with counsel. This guy spent hours. Now, this is a, a guy who hasn't slept in hours, uh, had some medical issues going on. And he sat there in front of that camcorder and answered every single question. And he had pretty much covered the waterfront. We thought that he had handled it pretty well. There was no point to putting him, nothing to be gained by putting him on the stand to repeat it. And why subject him to, uh, to what might be underhanded cross-examination? Uh, this, by the way, I, I knew both of the, uh, the Zimmerman attorneys, uh, Marco Mara and Don West. They had wanted to put Zimmerman on the stand. Zimmerman had desperately wanted to go on the stand. They chose not to because you can find on uh, YouTube the video of him doing the walkthrough with the police. That kid, he again did what we would have told him not to. He's answering all the detailed questions, which is where all the quicksand is and all the, all the chances to make a mistake. And really made no mistakes. And that video, once the jury had been shown up by the prosecution, they had seen Zimmerman testify and there was no point in putting him on. And the other case that I did, the police officer in federal court, he had, this was his fourth time at that. The shooting took place in 2016. He was cleared by his department. He was cleared by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, which does not, I guarantee you, does not cover for dirty cops or bad cops. He was cleared by the state's attorney's office, the local prosecuting authority, and for good measure, went in front of the grand jury, which returned a no true bill, stating no crime had been committed by this officer. 
And then in 2019, a social justice warrior from the Department of Justice decides he's going to charge him federally. Now, we won both of those cases. And the reason was he had told his story four times over. It was in evidence. Uh, I was the first witness called for the defense. And interestingly, we were able to cover virtually every point in direct. And what we didn't, the prosecution brought up. And because we were in the right, we were able to shoot that down. Uh, I left. I realized I've got time to get on a plane and get back to my class that my, my good friend Steve Denny was covering me on at Boondocks Range in Mississippi. And I found out the next day they had closed after that because all the waterfront had been covered. And both of those cases, we did win. We won total acquittals, and both men are back, thank God, with their families and their careers. But by and large, as a general rule, a, an affirmative defense, and self-defense most certainly is that, is always going to be stronger if the defendant testifies. In each of those three exception cases I've discussed, they had testified. They had just done so prior and prior stages of the criminal justice investigation. Right. Say a firearms instructor out there wants to start uh, offering themselves as an expert witness for cases. How do they go about uh, making themselves available to attorneys and getting contacted for cases? For, for most of us, it was the attorneys came to us. Uh, that's how I started. Uh, I literally had, in 1979, I had to have the attorney explain to me, what exactly does this expert witness do anyway? Uh, after that, you'll start getting word of mouth, et cetera. If you're looking for it, uh, I know a lot of guys who do advertise. Uh, you can advertise in the various law journals. Uh, most states will have state bar, so well, every state has a state bar association. Most will also have a, uh, a state-level association of criminal defense lawyers. Uh, those will have newsletters, maybe even their own magazines. National Association of uh, Criminal Defense Lawyers has their monthly national magazine called Champion. And all of those will generally have a classified ad page where you can put yourself forth, a firearms instructor available for expert testimony. Now, one thing you'll find on the criminal side is that normally in our field, your field, my field, many of, your, many of our listeners here, the areas of use of force training, use of force parameters, dynamics of violent encounters, most of us now use Bill Lewinsky's classic term, force science. They don't have to pay us thousands of dollars. The prosecutor can get that testimony for free by simply requesting it from his local police department's instructors, local police academy instructors. I found uh, my, uh, my antennae go up when I get contacted by a prosecutor. And my first question is, why won't the people, the very competent people you can get for free, say what it is that you need said? And very often it's because they have an unmeritorious, politically-based prosecution that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. What you will get occasionally is uh, their perception of the jury pool is that there are local allegations of this bullshit blue wall of silence thing and all cops cover for each other. And they're afraid local officers testifying as experts uh, would, uh, would be subject to that suspicion. So they want to bring in an outsider. Uh, other than that, I don't see, uh, I, I just don't see a whole lot of uh, 
private expert testimony in our field being contracted by prosecutors. Yeah, uh, of course, one of the, the ones, the one I did for the prosecution was the local case, like where our people were involved in it. So I, like you said, the prosecution got it for free is that they subpoenaed me. The defense case that I did, I was worked with the cop, well, the lawyer used to be a cop and we worked together for 14 years. So we've got a lot of water under our particular bridge. And then he went on to law school and he's now a public defender. And he called me and said, hey, I got to tell you about this case I've got. And uh, he said, can you help? And I went and helped. I, I got paid a Diet Coke for testifying in, in that case and uh, because I felt it was the right thing to do. And well, if I was you, gonna, go ahead. You got, you got paid more than a Diet Coke. <laughs> uh, again, I don't talk about, this is the second time we're getting into belief <laughs> systems here. Yeah. But if there is such a thing as a karma, after you did that, brother, you ain't coming back as a dung beetle next time. Well, you know, I felt like I had to do it for one. I believe the guy's wrong for the charge. And if I'm going to raise my hand and swear to warrants and stuff, then I need to raise my hand and swear to the truth when I think it's on the defendant's side. And the other is, you know, if I'm going to have credibility, I have to call them like I see them. Yeah, absolutely. And this guy's, I don't think he's guilty. And I can't get into the specifics of the, of the case right now because it's still ongoing. Um, I've got another case that's pending, um, but I'll be for for technical issue involving in the case, not necessarily the guilt or innocence part of it. And then I've consulted with a couple of lawyers in some civil cases, but I haven't taken one of those yet. Um, it just, that's just one of the questions I get is people's like, how do you do it? How do you get involved? And I think we've already addressed that. Um, so Tom Beatty, who is a range master certified instructor and listens to the show, wants to know what is the biggest impactful lesson that you've learned as an expert witness that then made its way into your lesson plans as an instructor know the case better than the other side's attorney the only thing that's going to save you is is truth if you don't have the truth you need to know the truth and its details better than opposing counsel does uh, and never take a case you're not totally comfortable with that you don't think is on the side of the angels the, the first, any uh, any stretch of the truth that, uh, that, you know, you did for a guilty client. Everything you've said in the past is discoverable. One of the questions you're always asked is, uh, give me a list of the cases that you've done. And in federal court, uh, you have to submit a Rule 26 form, a listing of all the cases. And in fact, even depositions, any sworn testimony that you've done in the past five years. Uh, these guys will have their clerks and paralegals go over all that with a fine-tooth comb. And if they find you contradicting yourself, uh, you're going to get humiliated in court, and you'll tank the case. Now, if you've ever changed an opinion on something, fine, but before you get into court, publish somehow, somewhere, that X used to be my opinion, but I've changed my opinion to Y because of such and such, if that's something that might come up in court. The, the key thing to... Uh, to winning cases is case selection. If you are if you know your stuff and you're utterly convinced this person is in the right, that means you're going to have the tools, the facts, the evidence to show they were in the right. And that's what's going to give you a, a way better win-loss ratio. 
I think I think what Tom's asking here is what lessons are you taking from the courtroom to the classroom as far as what you're teaching your students? Well, a whole lot of it. Uh, what I teach is geared toward the, the civil liability side and all of that. I tell them that basically it's, it's common sense. That there are times you can take off your self-defense coach hat, put on your life coach hat, and find yourself giving the exact same advice. And the advice here is act to the standard by which you know you'll be judged. And then ipso facto, you should not be found wanting in the judgment. Be absolutely certain that everything you're going to say is right. Now, if it turns out there were 10 issues in the case and your guy was right on nine of them and wrong on, on one, I call it amputating gangrenous tissue. Don't try to say, oh, he's fine on all 10 of them. Okay, because your, your insincerity, your bullshit, if you will, saying he was right when he was wrong, is going to contaminate the entire case. Like, like the, the example I give is you're a doctor and some guy got his arm caught in a farm machine and he comes in and he's got a simple fracture of the humerus. And you look at that and say, oh, piece of cake, a Boy Scout with a first aid merit badge can splint that. And ooh, there's some pretty badly splintered radius and ulna, but we've got great orthopedic surgeons here. But that hand is hamburger. Oh my God, and the world's greatest surgeon, I'm going to save everything. Well, you're not going to save necrotic tissue. The gangrene will set in, he'll lose the hand, it'll spread, he'll lose the limb, and ultimately you'll lose the patient. If you try to say wrong was right in one out of 10 issues, you're going to lose the case just like that doctor treating the gangrenous patient would lose the patient. But I tell them, look, most of you are teachers. If I get a 90% on an exam, nine out of 10, right, that's still a passing grade, right? In fact, in some disciplines, it's a damn good passing grade. But if I cheat on one answer, what's my grade? Zero flunk. And the same is true here. So if there's one thing the guy did wrong out of the 10 issues, yeah, this was wrong. I would have written them up for it if I was a supervisor, but it was not the salient thing here. It was not the proximate cause of the death in question. It's a sidetrack and it's irrelevant. And in that situation, the, the people who listen to you are going to be saying, okay, this guy can admit that so-and-so is wrong on one thing. That makes it a whole lot easier for me to believe that when he tells us he was right on the other nine things, he's right. And me and my 11 new friends in this jury box probably never spent our whole life being 100% right either. So maybe this defendant's okay after all. But the, the bottom line, never lie, never exaggerate, never bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I want to circle back to the Rittenhouse case for a second. Not necessarily the facts of the case. But I was struck as, as the trial was going on the reaction of people on social media that were watching the trial in real time and that were sending out their Facebook messages and everything that, that will rot your mind that were shocked at some of the things that they saw going on in the courtroom. And it's like, they kept expecting for the judge to all of a sudden get up and put on a white robe and, and solve all these problems that they were seeing going on. And like, they were all, you know, well, this just happened. So X has to follow. And everything could could you elaborate on just dirty tactics that take place in courtrooms or just incompetence that takes well, place in courtrooms? The prosecutor in that case was one of the ones I mentioned who screams at the judge, it's never legal, it's never self-defense to shoot an unarmed man. 
Well, as we've explained, that's not true. And whether he said that out of ignorance or intentional deception, I will never know. We do know that at one point in that trial, you saw the extraordinary moment when Judge Bruce Schrader looked at that man outside the hearing of the jury and said to the prosecutor, I don't believe you. And you don't generally see that in American courts. Um, the, uh, the thing uh, the prosecutor did with the kids AR-15, swing it around across the, the audience. And I couldn't tell from the camera angle because they weren't obviously weren't showing the, the jury, the faces of the jury. Some said he swung it across the jury. I've seen that before. And it's a dirty shyster trick. They will always do it with the, the death weapon. And they will always do it when they are in the role of the defendant. And what they're trying to do is psychologically terrorize the jury. See, I'm him attacking you. I've also never seen it work. Every time I've seen them pull that crap, the jury's smart enough to pick up on it and acquit the client and the acquit the defendant. And the lesson there is never underestimate the intelligence of your jury. I found out whoever underestimates the jury, whoever bullshits the jury, is going to lose the case. My definition of a jury, it's a 12-headed creature. It's got a collective IQ that's going to add up to way over 1,200 IQ points. Might have as much as half a millennium of life experience if you get an older jury. And above all, 12 separately functioning bullshit detectors, at least some of which are going to be operational at any given moment in the trial. That's been my experience. Whoever triggers the jury's bullshit alert is going to lose that case. Don't you be the one that loses it for an innocent defendant. Yeah, I think one of the more interesting things that I've seen was a jury reaching its verdict over where a flashlight was pointed. Yeah, there were three days of testimony on all these other legal you know, points video of the shooting incident and everything. This is the one I've already mentioned where I was the expert with our deputy involved. And the whole thing came down to the defendant testified that when the deputy came through the door, the deputy shined the flashlight directly into his face and that he couldn't tell it was a deputy. He thought his home was being invaded. And the jury came back out after hours of deliberation and wanted to see the video again. And they had us taking it frame by frame. And then one of them yelled, stop it right there. And the deputy's weapons mounted flashlight was pointed into the floor and the spill was illuminating the room. And then there was the defendant standing there in all his glory uh, being illuminated by the spill of the slightest. He's raising the weapon. And I heard one of the jurors say audibly, the light wasn't shining in his eyes. And then they went back into the jury room and voted to convict the guy. That's great. And now that case was discussed widely in social media because we released the video within hours of the shooting taking place. And everybody, oh, he knocked on the door for two minutes calling out that it was sheriff's office. And how could you, the defendant not have known that it was sheriff deputies? It all came down to where was the flashlight pointed? And it just, we think that everything is these great, these great legal issues, but it could be something very minute like that that actually swings the case one way or the other yeah you've got to look at every detail you've got to you've got to go over everything with a fine-tooth comb like i said you, you need to know that case better than the attorney who's prosecuting it or you know better than the opposing counsel the opposing attorney who's going to be cross-examining you 
here's one thing from the prosecution side that I've never, never understood. And I, you discussed a couple of cases where this is where the person who used force is asserting that, yes, they use force, but then the prosecutor tries to claim that it was actually accidental use of force on the part of the defendant. They didn't really mean to do it, so therefore it makes it illegal. That happens way more often than people think, and it's counterintuitive, but you have to uh, understand the motivation. Uh, and the motives are different and criminal and civil. Uh, on the criminal side, uh, the, the public seems to think that, you know, a prosecutor gets a bonus if he convicts you for murder one instead of murder two or murder at all instead of manslaughter. And in fact, any conviction is a win for the office. But any acquittal is a personal and office-wide shame to the prosecutor's office. Uh, it's also not a good career move because... Uh, Generally, the elected district attorney, state's attorney, whatever they call it in your jurisdiction, is the administrator and very seldom tries cases unless it's a very small office. The, uh, the assistant district attorney, assistant state's attorney leading the case, if he or she loses that case, that is not going to win favor from the boss, who was an elected official and takes a hit in the re-election after it's been published. Hey, you want to re-elect the guy that that accuses innocent people of horrible things because 12 of us from, from our jury pool here, which is the public, uh, said he was full of crap. The guy was innocent. So it's in their best interest to lower the bar and go to low-hanging fruit. Uh, the accident, think about it. There's no, you've never heard the term justifiable accident. Everybody knows it's justifiable homicide. It's a whole lot easier to convince them that a decent person made a mistake for just one second doing something stupid. Uh, well, we saw that classically in the old revolver days. It was almost a syndrome. They would accuse you of cocking the hammer of the revolver to set the stage of the hair trigger of the reckless, negligent, blah, blah, blah. This is manslaughter. Uh, why do you think so many departments before the coming of the auto pistol rendered their guns double action only? Not only because some of those things were happening with the cock hammers, but also to avoid the false allegation that they were. And the, the gun enthusiast thinks, well, hell, shouldn't you be able to tip send it to the crime lab, check the primer indents and see whether it was the long drop of the single action or the shorter drop of the double? No, because of the blowback and the pressure during the shot, uh, we went all the way to ATF crime lab and nobody's ever been able to make that distinction. Uh, this is why you had in the early days of the semi-automatic police service pistol replacing the service revolver. So many double action only guns like the Smith 5946, uh, the SAO P226, and the like uh, to eliminate that, that false possibility. Now, on the civil side, it's a different motive. In a civil lawsuit, every now and then they are looking for social justice. Most of the time, they're looking for deep pockets. If they say you intentionally shot the man you shouldn't have shot out of racist bloodlust, the defense counsel is going to stand up and say, thank you, Mr. Plaintiff. Your Honor, motion to dismiss because our underwriters do not cover that. No underwriter, no insurance company, whether it insures a municipality or an individual, will protect again, will, will cover for what's called a willful tort for your deliberate act to harm another. Uh, if you want a good example of that, Look up the case of uh, Terry Graham 
versus uh, Texas Farm Bureau. Now, if, I change, if I'm the plaintiff's lawyer and I change my theory to hair trigger, deactivated safety, finger on trigger when it shouldn't have been, reckless, negligent, blah, blah, blah. Recklessness and negligence is exactly in a, civil, in a civilian shooting what homeowner liability is designed to cover if you shot the home invader, what auto liability is designed to cover if you ended up having to shoot a carjacker or a road rage uh, attacker. And it's what the municipal uh, uh, pool of, uh, of self-insurers is you know, allowed to pay for. So that's why they'll literally fabricate and say that by accident, even when they did deliberately. And that is a really good reason not to be putting less than five and a half pound connectors in your blocks, uh, tricked out uh, match target triggers in your AR-15s, deactivating grip safety on your optional 1911 or things of that nature. All right. What else about expert witness work would you like to talk about that I have not yet asked you about? Well, for you, for you and me, uh, because we've worked on both sides, you'll occasionally got somebody, you know, who's, you know, very much uh, identifying with one side or the other that goes, oh, wow. So you work both sides of the street. And my answer to that is you're goddamn right. I work both sides of the street because justice is a two-way street and you only go one way in a two-way street. You only see half of what's going on and it'll ultimately end up going in circles. Right. Uh, anything else about courtroom stuff that you'd like to tell me what it is? Always respect the jury. Uh, when the other when the other side uh, says objection, shut the hell up, or the co- judge will step on you like a cockroach. And uh, basically, that's that's it. Take it serious. Don't go into a courtroom and pretend to be other than what you are. I've seen guys go in and suddenly try to talk like a professor when they don't normally. The only thing I'll change in voice uh, when I'm in there is I'll speak a little bit slower at about this pace than I do now talking with you or with a class. And the reason is here, anybody misses anything, they can play it back. By definition, they wouldn't have been watching this long if they weren't interested in the topic and they know the terminology. In court, you've got to remember a whole lot of these jurors don't know from your topic. You are their first real education. If you talk too fast, it may go over their heads. They're taking notes, and perhaps more importantly, so is the court reporter. And if this thing goes downhill and they get an unmeritorious conviction on an innocent person you're speaking for, if they transcribe something wrong, we're screwed. Because as a general rule, the appellate court will not review new evidence. They will review the written transcript of the prior trial. And if you talk so fast that you know, something became gibberish. Uh, it could be something in the critical area. I've seen this was so transcribed as this was not so because someone was talking too fast. Uh, one of my favorites, it was the, the officer was armed with a Colt 45. That came out in the transcript as Colt Ford E5. I don't know if Ford ever manufactured an E5 vehicle. <laughs> it would probably be cold if you didn't leave it running. But uh, that wasn't what we were talking about. Uh, I remember one, uh, there was a struggle for the guns, so we were discussing weapon retention. 
And because of the deposition, I talked too fast. I should have slowed down a little more. It came out as weaponry tension. Now, there are some situations where even you and I will get pretty darn tense around the weaponry, but that wasn't the topic. <laughs> so, so I speak enough slowly that people can understand me and that uh, also unfamiliar terms and proper nouns. I pause and take a moment to spell. Uh, other than that, that's it. Be, be who you are. Uh, most of you, you, you were talking about the primarily about the instructor's role. You're already in role. You are a teacher. Yeah, Marty's making a lot needs. of background noise there. Okay, hang on a sec. Uh, we got we got some canine background here, kids. Uh, brother and brother beams. What was the old saying? Never work with kids and dogs. I guess never work with Marty and dogs. Yeah, it's a whole lot cuter <laughs> if they can see the dogs. <laughs> but uh, uh, what I was starting to say, the, the instructor is expert witness. Don't pretend to be something else. The instructor is exactly what that jury needs. You are the one teaching them what they need to know about this stuff. Your skill in doing that is what makes you the ideal person to come in. You are the, the translator of an unfamiliar language. You are, you are their guide through an unfamiliar topic. Teach them exactly the way you teach a police academy class or a class of armed citizens, bearing in mind that these are first day beginners in this particular topic. Just in general, from the legal system, are you seeing any new trends starting to sweep across the country? Yeah, what we've seen in the last decade, really, starting with the Zimmerman case, is the use of very high-powered uh, PR professionals to create a trope of, uh, of wrongdoing, uh, to get uh, images and statements to their powerful connections of CNN, the New York mainstream media, and all that. Uh, your classic case where it really began, at least where it really surfaced, uh, again, was Zimmerman. Uh, the evidence clearly showed and was ultimately proven at trial. He was attacked by a young man who had gotten in a thug life and was getting his brains beaten out on a sidewalk when he fired the shot that he fired. But the family only knew our unarmed 17-year-old son has been killed. They hired attorney Benjamin Crump, who hired PR man Ryan Julison, and together they came up with this whole meme of that they took the picture of Trayvon Martin, who at 17 towered over Zimmerman, picture of him as a prepubescent 12-year-old. And that was the picture the world saw and still sees to this day of Trayvon Martin, juxtaposed it with the ugliest image they could find of George Zimmerman, and created this meme of the sweet, innocent child skipping down the street with a box of Skittles when the evil racist gunned him down to satisfy his bloodlust. We've seen that again and again and again. We, we talked about the Rittenhouse case. Well, the Rittenhouse case was triggered beforehand by the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's what had led to the protests that had turned into the riots that the kid was embroiled in when those four, that chain of four shootings took place. Jacob Blake was painted at the beginning by... The plaintiffs, led by Benjamin Crump and Ryan Jurlison, et cetera, as the ombudsman who was trying to break up a domestic disturbance and called the police, and the evil white racist police came and chased him and shot him in the back while he was unarmed. 
If you look at the cell phone video that they show, it's clearly apparent from the very beginning, there was a knife in Jacob Blake's left hand. He was not the caller. Jacob Blake was the suspect they called about because he was going nuts. As the cops got on the way, they realized, ooh, there's a warrant out on this guy for sexual assault. They attempt to take him into custody. Doesn't work. He pulls the knife. They tase him. The taser doesn't work. Why do you think they were chasing him around the car with their guns up? And when at the front seat of the car, the officer is on his right, and he is he has the knife in his left hand is starting to reach in and suddenly turns toward that officer, the officer shot him. Because of the angles, the bullets entered behind lateral midline. The knife was clearly visible. Jacob Blake later admitted, yes, he had a knife. Even after that part came out publicly, long later, weeks later, weeks later, we still heard the, the attorney for the family say they shot an unarmed black man in the back. Now, you saw the power of those false accusations. And the big mistake that Kenosha made was they let that allegation go unchallenged. They did not do what you did at your smart department when you had a potentially controversial shooting get ahead of the narrative, show the truth immediately, call a press conference, say, here's what happened, play the dispatch tape, just, you know, re redact the name and address of the person so nobody on the family of the deceased side is going to go after them for revenge. Here's the body cam, here's the dash cam, here are the diagrams, we will keep you apprised as the investigation continues, but here's what we know now. And in the communities that are doing what you did, Lee, in your department, we're not seeing those protests burning up into riots as they did in Kenosha. And you ask me, has anything changed? Yeah, I think that's the real big change there. That dirty pool shyster strategy that's caused in the end so much suffering, so much cost in, in buildings and jobs and in deaths and in injuries in this country. Um. Let's shift gears here for a second. Would you like to talk about your deadly force instructor class? I appreciate the excellent review you gave when you took it. Thank you. Uh, I did uh, one of those earlier this year with Art Joslin, and that worked out great. We'll be doing another in November in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'll be doing that either with uh, Dr. Art Joslin or with Marty Hayes, whom you know. And Marty's been an expert witness for more than 30 years and, you know, of course, has a law degree. Uh, either way, that last five days, uh, we do go fairly heavy into the, uh, the role of the instructor as material witness for the person they trained who later got in trouble for doing what they were taught to do for defending themselves and the expert witness function. But it's geared mainly on how to get the key points of deadly force across, primarily to the law-abiding armed American citizen. Yeah. Uh, five days, 40 hours. You know, for the instructors out there that are trying to decide whether or not it's worth that amount of money uh, to go to in the time, because quite frankly, hotels are up astronomically right now. We and, know. and uh, you know, gas is up. Everybody's aware of that. It puts you in, I think, in a different mindset to have that knowledge and to experience the all of the things that come from the cases going to court that you, you may look at your square range training differently. And I think you, people might want to format their training different. They're not going to understand that until they actually experience um, 
even the simulated errors of court. I, I may not have said that well. Uh, oh, we got the point across. Yeah, I, I think too many people, they, they think that everything's going to be cut and dry. And that, you know, the cops are going to walk up and pat their yeah. their their yeah. student on the back and say, good job. And that's the end of it. And that's just uh, not a the good. Best. A good shoot is a good shoot. Right. Whenever I hear that, Lee, I want to tell him, yeah, next Easter, a bunny is going to come to your house and bring eggs, too. Right. Uh, I just got off a case where the officer was cleared by his agency, the state, the state's attorney's office, and the grand jury, and still went through a nightmarish ordeal that lasted half a decade from a shooting in 2016 that didn't finish until we got his acquittal in April of 2022. Yeah. Tell me, tell me again how a good shoot is a good shoot. Yeah, I think that's one of the areas that has changed. It certainly changed in the 23 years that I've been in the business or on the law enforcement side. Is that you know, early on, if the cops showed up and investigated and said, "Yeah, this is a good shoot," that was pretty well the end of it. And now that's just not the case. Social media gets involved so much, and it and it may force a prosecutor into taking a bad case to trial in which there's less punishment for the prosecutor if they go to trial and lose than if they don't go to trial. Yep. I'm afraid that's true. Social media is, in that respect, uh, a curse upon the justice system. Uh, and it just, it's, that's what I think where the world's changing. We had a change in prosecutor here, and it completely changed uh, the, the landscape uh, of cases in our jurisdiction. Um, one other thing we haven't talked recently in person. Are you aware that the Georgia State Supreme Court overturned the conviction of Tex MacGyver? Who oh, was cool. the Tex MacGyver was the lawyer that uh, um, he claims accidentally shot his wife. Uh, they were in oh, a, this is yes, the guy with the Smith and Wesson thirty-eight in the mm -hmm. back seat or something. Okay, yeah. well that's, that's how many years ago? Oh, gosh, probably seven, eight years ago. I think he's close to finishing out the sentence that he got. Uh, but they, they overturned his conviction on the murder charge, but they upheld his conviction on the tampering with a witness charge or to influence a witness charge. So he still has to finish out the sentence for that, but the rest of it's going back for trial. And it was all over the prosecutor putting in stuff in the trial they shouldn't have put in. And as far as to illustrate what we've just been talking about, the initial investigator that investigated that incident charged Mr. MacGyver, I believe, with reckless conduct, which is a misdemeanor. And then the prosecutor stepped in and kicked it up to a murder charge. Now, the victim, which was his wife, supposedly told the ER staff that her husband accidentally shot her before she died. And they, that now, yeah. and they still tried him for murder and got a conviction. Getting involved in the legal system is is perilous. Well, folks, I, I always invoke Ogden Nash, the, the humorist and poet. When called by a panther, don't answer. It's a, it's a different world. And, it it is, is, and I don't think it's changing for the better. Uh, in some respects, it is, but I think in, in the legal sense, it's not. 
<laughs> Anything else you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you? Yeah, good, about? brother. You've gone over an hour, and I hope we've given your, your listeners some good information. All right. Well, well, as always, I enjoy talking to you, and thank you for coming on again. Likewise, brother. Anybody wants to take training with us, our website is masadayugroup.com. Uh, we're all around the country. Take a look. If we got something you want, you can probably get, find something on striking distance. <laughs> there you go, because striking distance is good these days. Well, we're pretty much all over the place. Uh, we have staff doing some of the uh, shooting courses. Uh, I do the uh, deadly force courses. Right. And it's it's a lot of travel, but heck, we, uh, we Arabs are supposed to be a nomadic people, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, thank you for your time and to the audience. And to the audience, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming.